0: Words. They get golly hard when they jumble Jumping over hurdles, slowing verbs like a turtle Murkin' pool, like Squirtle and cake gold. Cold blood is with the keep, I'm a boss
1: This is That Got Me Thinking and I'm Ellie Newman This week, I've been thinking about likability and the power of narrative. I've been thinking about being in the public eye and whether teaching someone to be more authentic is an oxymoron, and for that matter, whether being contradictory or acting like a moron can ultimately be more likable. My guest today is Stephen Goldstein. He's a civil rights leader who began his career as a television producer. He worked as an attorney for the U.S. House Judiciary Committee and as a communications director in the U.S. Senate prior to becoming a strategist and then founding executive director of Garden State Equality. He was a college professor and is currently studying for the rabbinate at the Academy for Jewish Religion in New York. He joins us today to discuss his new book, The Turn-On, How the Powerful Make Us Like Them, From Washington to Wall Street to Hollywood. Welcome, Stephen, and thank you for joining us today on That Got Me Thinking.
0: Ellie, it's fantastic to be here. Thanks so much.
1: So I want to start with um, just a basic question as to whether likability is the same as being likable.
0: Great question, Ellie. So let me say that likability is not the same as being nice. You know, I've worked in various sectors of influence in our society. I've worked in television with people like Oprah. I've worked in politics with people like uh, Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer. And I've worked in many other sectors of influence. And the question I'm asked about famous people whom I've encountered is this, Stephen. is he or she nice? That's everybody's first question. And I don't equate being likable with being nice. People who are nice tend to have likability that's wide but a millimeter deep. The people who like nice people uh, don't tend to have much allegiance to them. Ironically, It's the people who are a bit more polarizing, who have a likability base of people who like them intensely. For example, many of us, myself included, I am a, a progressive, may not like Donald Trump whatsoever. In my case, I'm putting it mildly. But those who do like Trump like him intensely, intensely, so Likeability, I define not as being nice, but as the combination of qualities that a public figure has or an ordinary person has that compel the rest of us to enter an emotional relationship with them. You know, Ellie, even Donald Trump supporters wouldn't call him nice. He has a a staunch fan base um, among very right wing Republican voters, but even they would say, well, we don't like him because he's a nice guy. We like him maybe precisely because of the opposite reason. But clearly to his base, and clearly as other public figures have in their likability bases, Trump presents some sort of combination of qualities that compels his supporters to enter an emotional relationship with him. And that's how I define likability.
1: Well, it's interesting because as you're speaking, I'm thinking as a culture, we don't even value nice. So it's interesting to me just the idea that that's the first thing that people ask about whether someone's nice. Because in reality, it's not really a quality that is actually held very high. You know, a lot of times people will, will equate it with weakness, um, or, or with something that isn't, isn't as attractive. Um, even in the exactly. dating field, you know, you say, Oh, the guy's really nice or the woman's really nice. It's like, Oh, that means boring. That means weak. You know, that means these exactly. high- I'm not
0: interested in exactly being uh, described as nice means that you're described as tofu without any seasoning added yet. You could be anything, but you're inoffensive most of all, but guess what? Many of us are not attracted to inoffensive. That's how reality television has succeeded. Listen, there are strong characters in reality television. That's what the producers try to shape. And there's always a bad character. Unfortunately, a lot of times it's sexist or racist, so they make somebody like Omarosa a bad character. But people are attracted to her in the same way that people are attracted on a highway to gawking at a car wreck. They find that attractive and bizarrely likable in the moment, uh, unless they get too much of it, and the traffic jam keeps them for miles. But, you know, when they gawk they're like ability sensors or at full staff so it's not nice so I want to talk a
1: little bit about your career because as I read the book jacket when I first got the book, I was like, oh, I don't want to interview this guy. He's making me feel terrible about myself. He's just so <laughs> like had had the most envious career, and and um you you were so successful in so many areas and worked in in so many exciting fields, um and accomplished so much. And I, I, I'm wondering, was that a planned trajectory? And um, so maybe we'll start there, and then we can talk about about kind of the beginnings of this book and and how we're working for the Senate hearings, booking Senate hearings, and then Oprah kind of was, was the start. But, but first off, um, did you, were you a man with a plan?
0: No. And you know, um, I've been a professor uh, of law, and I've been a professor to undergraduates as well. And I think I have always followed the advice that I give them in terms of a career. Don't be so burdened with a plan. If you go for the next most interesting job, you're going to be happy. Look at what's the next most interesting job. Say, would I love this every single day from 9 to 7 or whatever your hours might be? And if so, take the job if it's offered. So, no, I didn't set about going to uh, various different professions, and they've been different, uh, as, a, as a plan. However, as a kid, when my parents asked me what I wanted to be, I had many different answers All within a minute, I said, uh, you know, I want to be in politics. I'd like to run a political campaign. I'd love to do um, civil rights. I'd love to be a television producer. I'd love to be a lawyer. I'd love to teach. And it went on and on and on. I believe at some point I said I'd love to write a book. And it's wound up that I've done all those things. And it must have sounded preposterous to my folks it's sort of like a, a little kid saying, I want to be an astronaut and land on the moon, and nothing less will make me happy. But as a little kid, I wanted to do all those things that I mentioned, and I have done all those things. And i, I it's been the most blessed life, <laughs> and I use that adjective decidedly because now I'm in rabbinical school, and I, and I do thank my blessings for this. But I'm probably the least frustrated person you'll ever talk to. Uh, whatever I've dreamed— I've either done or I intend to do, and I'm not somebody who particularly finds um, blocks in the way as permanent obstacles. So it's been a really good life. But I think that uh, what ties everything together is making an impact on this world. I never really cared about being rich. I don't know that I ever cared about being comfortable. I cared about making a difference in the world. So. Although I've done all these professions, in television, my motive as a TV producer was to make a difference in the world. As a staffer in the U.S. House and Senate, my motivation was to make a difference in the world. When I was a producer for Oprah, I wanted to make a difference in the world. And I can go through all the jobs, and that was my motivation. And it's not like I'm the Jewish Mother Teresa who wears a yarmulke. These things make me really happy. I mean, it's not just to help other people, but Listen, creating social change and moving the world forward, that's what floats my boat. So um, I've gotten to do that, and it's from many angles, and it's been a blessing.
1: So on two fronts, one, you've got chutzpah, Um, we'll we'll determine as we go if you're likable and if that was a factor in your success. Um, But as I read your book, and also as I'm listening to you talk, I think the elements that are the ones that are sort of the purpose of life, right, for self-expansion and creativity and exploration and enjoyment, like I'm hearing all of those um, coming out in your your approach to your work. Um, I also have to just note, I was laughing in your book when you were talking about being a staffer and making laws because i think okay anyone who's not a lawyer may not realize that yes it is the staffers who make the laws everyone else is asleep when it's four in the morning and the staffers are all there writing writing what actually becomes the law so
0: you must have you must know some staffers or have been one yourself but i appreciate that so much
1: so let's talk about the combination um of being a staffer and booking the Senate hearings and then being a booker for Oprah. Because it's you mentioned true. in the book that there was such a, a tight, um, synchronicity to the, to both of those as far as what you were doing. And that that led actually, um, the beginning, it didn't happen for many years, but led to the, the, this book. So, so what did that look like?
0: Exactly. So uh, I was working in the early 90s as a lawyer on the House Judiciary Committee for then Congressman Chuck Schumer, uh, now the Senate Democratic leader. And uh, I had several responsibilities. One was writing legislation. And uh, I focused actually mostly on women's rights legislation, one of the, the few men to do that. And uh, I focused on violence against women and on, a, on women's reproductive health and um, helped to write uh, the Freedom of Access to Clinic Entrances Act. That's still the only uh, standalone uh, pro-choice federal law ever enacted. Um, So if you like my politics, you'll like those things that I did. And if you don't like my politics, what can I say?
1: The next question is, will we like you because of that? So that's yet to be determined. You know, I know.
0: It's, It's so true. So that was part of my responsibility. The other part of my responsibility was booking uh, witnesses for uh, subcommittee hearings. And I began to notice the qualities by which certain witnesses were likable, appealing to um, members of Congress who were on the subcommittee. And I would start noticing the same traits over and over again. And it was important that members of Congress like the witnesses, because they, the witnesses, are who would persuade the members of Congress to vote a certain way many, many times. So a lot was at stake. Legislation was at stake. It wasn't just about putting on a show. But listen, I also know that members of Congress, they're an audience like the rest of us, and they want a show. They don't want to be bored to death. Uh, I knew from being a congressional staffer, That the number one reason that members of Congress cancel going to meetings themselves and instead send a staffer and tell their staffer, tell them I've got an urgent meeting, is the members of Congress don't want to be bored. Truly, uh, I I can't tell you how many uh, uh, meetings I've been into where I'm asked – Oh, is this meeting going to bore me to tears? Just you go instead. And that's not just political meetings, but any meetings. And I think any of us can relate to to that. And if we do have staff, we probably do send staff to meetings that we'd be bored at. So I knew I had to put on some sort of show. Um, And so I would start booking witnesses uh, that had the character traits that I began to see in witnesses that kept the attention of members of Congress, that persuaded members of Congress, and of course the number one trait of likability that I noticed was the witnesses had to be captivating, the opposite of boring. And I'll get to a minute about what all the eight traits were, but at Congress my long list was about 25 to 30 likability traits that I would actually write down and take notes, and I have notes that are, oh, about Uh, Nearly 30 years old right now. Okay, so that was a job in Congress. I loved it. Loved the job. But there was one little problem. The elections of 1994 were coming up, and every poll showed that the Republicans would take over the U.S. House and that Newt Gingrich would become Speaker. And that meant that I, as a Democratic committee staffer, would lose my job. It had nothing to do with me or my performance, but um, when one party takes over the – it takes over a House of Congress from the other party, all the committee staffers are replaced. And that meant I would have been out, for a jo- out of a job. And my, my political antenna were pretty good. Um, Newt Gingrich and the Republicans did wind up winning. I would have been out for a job. So I started looking for jobs early. Now, I had already worked in TV previously in my career, so I applied to lots of places, including, well, a very famous talk show. And uh, turns out that I got the job pretty quickly. So on a Friday, I ended work for the U.S. House of Representatives. And two days later, on a Sunday, I was flown out to Oprah Winfrey's farm, her then farm in Indiana, And I met her, my new boss. So in the space of 48 hours, I went from being a lawyer on the U.S. House Judiciary Committee to being a producer on The Oprah Winfrey Show, which is one of the strangest uh, transitions, or so you might think. I mean, most people would think that's as strange as Clark Kent becoming Superman or vice versa. It's quite a transformation. But again, maybe it wasn't because uh, an Oprah producer is – Responsible, as you said, for booking guests. And I began to take notes when I was at Oprah pretty quickly on what kind of guests were appealing, what character traits were most appealing. And it mattered at Oprah because it mattered for ratings. Uh, Look, she did amazing TV and she wanted to make a difference in the world, but there's not a public figure in television that doesn't care about ratings. And every day, you would get the ratings from the night before and get called into Oprah's office and she would read you the ratings. And listen, your job, if, if it wasn't on the line, it was a critical juncture in your job. And so I wanted to book guests who were the most appealing. And it turned out that my list of about 25 to 30 traits that I began to take note of, as far as guests were concerned, were the same or pretty much the same 25 to 30 traits that made witnesses in Congress appealing, likable, and I narrowed them down to eight traits. In my book, I have eight major traits, but three subtraits per each. So some of those original 25 to 30 traits survived as subtraits, but I I narrowed those traits down to eight traits, and wherever I worked including on political campaigns, including as a consultant to businesses, those eight likability traits predominated. And I realized that the likability traits that public figures present to us, actually that we demand of public figures for us to like them, are the same traits that we compel people to like us in real life, that ordinarily, ordinary people like Like you and me, not that you're ordinary, but everyday people who may not be Oprah or a U.S. senator uh, exhibit to make people like them. And I noticed something else as well, that the process by which people present their likability traits is awfully similar to the process by which any of us reveals our likability traits when we go out on a date and try to develop a romantic relationship with someone. And I described the process of, of dating in my book in a chapter called How We Fall In Like Is How We Fall In Love. And if you don't mind, I could tell you about that. Um,
1: I, I would. I want to ask one question before you get started on that. And that's whether or not you, you've said that the, the qualities are the same, whether they're a public figure or a personal yeah. acquaintance. And, and do they continue in the same manner? Do they vary if it's at a distance or up close? Um, is there a shift at some point once we have a more intimate relationship or an ongoing relationship with someone? or Are those traits ones that stay consistent?
0: Well, first of all, I, I make very clear in my book nobody is exceptional in all eight likability traits, but you do need to come across as likable to have some measure in each. And certainly nobody is likable in all 24 subtraits. I list three subtraits per trait. Uh, but again, it helps across the subtraits to have most of them, but you need to have a modicum of likability across all eight traits. And depending on what profession you're in as a public figure or what situation you're in as a real life person, the formula might actually be different. But the bottom line is it's eight traits you need to touch all eight. And um, there is room for it to be dynamic, but the eight traits paradigm is basic for everyone. And in my model – I present the eight traits in four stages of two traits each and at each stage I describe how those particular two traits are symbiotic go hand-in-hand with one another and those four stages of two traits each are how we reveal ourselves when we go on a date but I have these eight traits so the first two traits of Likeability, as I describe in my book, are captivation and hope. Now, we've already talked a little bit about captivation. Captivation is don't be boring. Captivation can come through many ways. Through your erudition. Yes, through appearance. Yes, through charisma. But don't be boring. Be captivating. And that's the first thing that everybody notices. And I know that when I've got on a date, the worst kinds of dates have been where you have nothing to say. Dates where the person opposite you is a bit of a buffoon or arrogant or awful, you can almost laugh at and you'll tell your friends after. But a boring date is absolutely misery to get through. And that's everybody's pet peeve, certainly when evaluating a public figure. Is the public figure boring? Now, um, symbiotic with captivation is the quality, the personality trait of hope, of optimism. Can this person you're sitting across from at the table or can this public figure make your life better, more optimistic? Are you hopeful? The person can add something to your life because captivation without hope really is a villain in a reality show. Anybody can be mean and be a jerk and be captivating. That indeed was what Omarosa was about. And these other reality TV negative stars are about. So you want to captivate in a good way. Now, many people would say, wait, how did President Trump, surely he captivated, but how in 2016, Did he captivate in a positive way? Listen to his supporters. He did. He was their voice. He gave them hope. So I try very hard in this book to um, be fair. I mean, people do know my politics as a progressive, but where somebody might not be a political progressive, but is likable, I do say so and point it out. So Ellie, after stage one, you've proven to somebody that, that you're captivating and hopeful? Stage two very is the most complicated stage, because stage two is authenticity and relatability. And so let's say you go on your first date, you find the person captivating and hopeful. In stage two, you ask, or date two, as it were, wait, is the person I met the first time for real? Is what I saw authentic? And then you ask, along with authenticity, is the person I met last time relatable? Uh, Can I relate to him or her? Can he or she relate to me? Now, the problem with stage two is, as you mentioned in your introduction, authenticity is the most challenging trait when it comes to a public figure being in the public eye. Because unlike the seven other traits, It is impossible for a public figure to be authentic in the public eye. It doesn't happen and it can't happen. Why? Part of it is what we as an audience demand, what we as the American public or any other public demands, we don't want authenticity in a public figure. Do you know why? Authenticity in a public figure – would require that the public figure show us his or her bad moods. That the public figure sometimes be boring, actually have a runny nose, not be able to get out of bed. That the public figure actually talks in run-on sentences like we all do in real life except um, in the public eye. Public figures are trained to speak in sound bites and those catchy quotes. That's not authentic. We, we seek authenticity in our public figures that I call fake or faux authenticity. We seek the image of authenticity. So Donald Trump offended every interest group left and right in 2016. Now his supporters would say, but he was authentic. He wasn't, he wasn't polished. He was a real person who made mistakes. I'd push back on that and say, all of Donald Trump's Uh, appearances at his rallies are well thought out. He's the master at entertainment. None of that was off the cuff. He absolutely thinks about it. He thinks when he calls somebody a stupid name or a stupid nickname, he's not doing that off the cuff. He's thought about it. He even says he's thought about it. So you have authenticity and relatability. Then you get to stage three which involves the traits of protectiveness and reliability. Um, And typically that involves asking yourself, if your interest in romance is starting to build, will this person be there for me? That's protectiveness. Will this person protect me when times get rough, protect me emotionally? Not not even physically, but emotionally. And will the person do so on a consistent basis? That's reliability. Um, Everybody wants somebody you can count on. And the same goes for public figures. Listen, when we see a, a movie star in a film, we're banking on that person's reliability, that the person will be consistent. And many of our stars, we're looking for them to protect us, like Clint Eastwood or Morgan Freeman. And finally, the last set of traits is what I call the conscience traits of compassion and perceptiveness. By the end of the first three stages, we've likely sealed the deal. We're in love with the person at the other end who has shown us his or her traits, or we certainly like that public figure. And we want to know by stage four, does the person have a conscience? Is the person compassionate in how he or she treats others? as the person perceptive as to other people's needs because nobody really wants to date a scoundrel so i call it the stage four the how do you treat servers at a restaurant stage and that usually involves compassion perceptiveness and then once you have those four stages and eight traits you're in love with your date or you're in like with your public figure. So so
1: with that, let's talk a little bit about the the dance that then ensues um, as far as the individual interacting with those eight traits. Because mm-hmm. as you speak about Trump, um, certainly to his base, he is extremely likable. And he is also extremely vile to the other half of the population that yes. does not um, find find his behavior likable. And it makes me think of Jung and, and his theories about Um, whether or not we like someone or dislike them is is largely a reflection on ourselves and and what they are reflecting back to us, qualities that we accept in ourselves or the dark self that we reject. How does that play into the theory of the the traits of likability?
0: Well, it's interesting, Ellie, that you mentioned that because what you mentioned is a form of projection. And Donald Trump often projects qualities on to others, unlikable traits that really reflect himself more than the other person. Like, uh, for example, the other day, uh, Donald Trump said Pete Buttigieg, the uh, young Democrat running for uh, president, that Pete Buttigieg found religion like two minutes ago, or, or however Trump put it. Now, Pete Buttigieg is genuinely a man of faith. And it's Donald Trump who... Five minutes ago, figuratively, but of course, uh, we're talking about 2016, discovered religion when he realized his e- evangelical base was important to him. So sure, um, the likability we seek in others is the likability um, we see in ourselves. I would agree with that premise.
1: And do the elements vary with generational shift? Are the qualities that Um, the eight qualities that are likeable now, are they they the same that they were um, for other generations, or does that shift along with the culture? Do they remain stable?
0: Well, they remain stable except for the first trait, which is captivation. And it is much harder today for a public figure to captivate when everybody is used to social media and 280 characters and 500 cable and streaming video options, at least, and people are ready to press the remote quickly. So the threshold for interesting, for being interesting, is much higher, much higher than it has ever been.
1: And does the type of media influence the the qualities as well? I'm, I'm thinking about what not only the mode of communicating those qualities, but that it, but whether or not the mode actually influences the qualities themselves.
0: It's true. That's why Twitter is so mean um, because the average person spends maybe a half a second on Twitter. And those who tweet, who include me and everybody else, know that. And you've got to stand out. So it makes one less nice and it makes one perhaps less classically likable, all those nice, warm and fuzzy traits, because you've got to stick out of social media immediately, immediately. And social media, particularly Twitter, presents this odd reward. The more, frankly, the more abrasive you are in tweeting, the more of a response you'll get. And that's how President Trump has mastered his likability, albeit his negative likability, by mastering the art of the mean tweet. And for all of us who think he's being mean, remember, his base thinks he's being Courageous. They certainly think he's being captivating. Truth be told, Trump is captivating all of us. And he does that by being outrageous in his tweets, by being captivating. Um, I would submit that he's less captivating than before because he's worn the audience out.
1: And the media is more than happy to give him all the playtime that he's interested in having. I think they're responsible at a large yes. part. Um, yes. just to the fact of, uh, you know, the basic elements of advertising. We, we, we were, you've spent a great deal of, of our conversation today talking about him. We've given him more playtime. Um, let's talk a bit about, uh, the educational camp um, and camps where people can go, and you've taken clients to become um, learn to become more likable.
0: Indeed. So, there is a nerve center in the United States of America that helps to create likability, believe it or not. And there's a company called Magid, uh, M A G I D, that Began as a news coach, a coach of on-air talent, such as anchors and reporters. And Magid would do really good qualitative and quantitative research of various media markets. And then based on that research, advise on-air talent how to become more likable on-air. And so I had always known of them as a TV producer, and and everybody in TV knows who MAGID is. They're called in the industry the news doctor. They come in, especially to local stations, they analyze the on-air talent, and they tell news directors, here's how you can fix your broadcasts and your on-air talent. So I knew they did that. But over the years, this company MAGID expanded to do likability coaching of Many people in all walks of life, in the corporate world, in the political world. So I took a political candidate there. His name was John Corzine, and I was a co-campaign manager of his 2000 U.S. Senate campaign. And uh, I took him to MAGID's headquarters in Marion, Iowa. Cause I didn't think, I thought John was very likable, but I didn't think it came across in public appearances. Frankly, I thought he was a bit flat and boring. Unlike in public appearances, unlike the way he was one-on-one where I thought he was compelling, especially cause he was so smart. And I said to John, John, we're going for uh, some coaching. And he said to me, where? I said, Marion. And he said, who's Marion? I said, no, Marion, Iowa. So he and I flew to Marion, Iowa, and you would never know that this was the nerve center of likability. And so John was coached for the better part of three days as to his presentational skills, much as an anchor person on TV would be. And I got to tell you, he went from a C, C, plus speaker beforehand to a B, plus, A, minus, and sometimes an A. And it worked. And I think it made a difference in his campaign for the U.S. Senate. He had been uh, chair of Goldman Sachs. He had never run for office before. And um, he was not a great public speaker. And now he's pretty good. So it made a difference in his ability to connect to voters. And he wound up winning that U.S. Senate race in 2000.
1: Do you think that the likability factors are involved in, uh, the various narratives that end up swaying public opinion? I'm thinking about the shift in public opinion on gay marriage and that with the commercials that started showing, um, rural middle class families and having authentic discussions about their experience with uh, various family members, LGBT family members.
0: Um, yep. are,
1: are the factors involved in 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 those uh, successful narratives?
0: Hugely, Elliot, I'm glad you asked about the uh, LGBT community where I've been an activist and I'm a member of the community, proudly so. So there is a national movement of between five to ten uh, LGBT national organizations and they provide the funding to state groups and they do the polling and these five to 10 national organizations. And there's probably even within that about two or three powerful ones. They determine uh, how the LGBTQ civil rights movement is going to be run. And I would say that any civil rights movement, there are these um, powerful national organizations. And until 2008, the argument that those national organizations put forth and that that which they pressured uh, the state organizations to put forth was a matter of counting civil rights. It used to be said before 2008 that same-sex couples denied the rights of marriage uh, are are denied 1138 rights of marriage. 1138 became a mantra. And then it became 1162 when somebody recounted. So then we adopted the number 1,162 rights that opposite-sex couples have who are married, that same-sex couples can't have. And then Proposition 8 in California emerged, and that was when California voters narrowly uh, overturned the – decision of the california supreme court to allow marriage equality and it's a different world today they, that a referendum like that uh would easily pass in california of course and after that loss in 2008 which surprised everyone the national marriage equality movement really began to take stock and changed its messaging and instead of talking about the 1162 rights of marriage Uh, we talked about love, fidelity, emotion, the same qualities of love that LGBTQ people have that anybody has. And we began to present same-sex couples who had likability traits. And I know in New Jersey, when we sued for marriage equality and eventually won, we cast about For plaintiff couples in that case who had the likability traits that I mention in my book. So that's how deep these likability traits go. I mean, they are actually vital to social change.
1: So maybe just our, our final question could focus on the, the opposite qualities, the qualities that repel us and, and repulse us. Um, I'm wondering if your next book may may focus on this. You could call it the, you know, turn off instead of turn on. Yes. Um, and and I'm just wondering if they are, uh, you know, the opposite qualities um, from the ones that turn us on or if they're distinctive.
0: Well, let me say this about the turn off qualities I have a chapter in my book where I talk about likability double standards that women, African Americans and LGBTQ people in public life and in in everyday life too face double standards of likability that the rest of society applies different standards. Now, here's what I mean. Let's take, for example, women. Women's likability is always discussed in ways that men's likability is rarely discussed was Hillary likable enough is Elizabeth Warren likable enough was Kamala Harris likable enough is Amy Klobuchar likable enough and it's a double standard in itself to talk about how likable women are and to examine their personalities in ways that society doesn't put men through. So people have their biases in what turns them on and what turns them off. So to ask who's a turn off is inevitably tied to uh, one's perception of a public figure or someone else in everyday life in terms of a prejudice lens. So it's a, it's a very connected question.
1: All right. Well, I think you're gonna have a lot of fodder for writing, um, either another book or some articles during the next election. Because as you it's just true. listed the, you know, the likability qualities of uh, even just beginning with the women. You know, clearly Kamala Harris it's was true. not um, suffered the same fate as Hillary Clinton. Um, the type of woman that is not um, likable enough for, for both men right. and women at this point. Um, well, thank you so much for joining Allie, us. On that, got me thinking. It's fabulous to talk talk to you, and definitely got us thinking.
0: Thank you, Ellie. Okay. I appreciate it okay. so much.
1: Okay, great. Well, thank you so much, Stephen. Bye bye. Bye bye.